The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him and He will direct your path. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. Before we begin our study this morning, we have some interesting things to cover in Judges. But we know that we can only learn doctrine under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit. We can learn academic things about Scripture apart from the Holy Spirit, but that does not accrue to our spiritual growth or spiritual advance. It's only under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit that we can really understand doctrine and begin to put spiritual doctrines together, spiritual words together, comparing one doctrine with another so that it builds together in an interrelated framework in our souls that gives us the ability to understand and discern the issues of life and make good decisions. So we always make sure that we're filled with the Spirit before we begin our study. We do that by using 1 John 1, 9. If necessary... God promises that if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So at the instant of confession, we recover the filling of the Holy Spirit. We're restored to fellowship so that we can advance in our spiritual life. So we always start with a few moments of silent prayer, and then I'll open. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that today we have this opportunity to come to your word. Your word is a mirror to reflect back upon our own lives. It is a source of absolute truth and therefore objectivity. Your word does not hold back, but explains to us exactly what we are like, why we are that way, and what your solutions are. Now, Father, as we fellowship together around the teaching of your word, we pray that we might be responsive to it, that we might be able to focus on what is going on this morning, the teaching that we might be able to clear our minds of the distractions of what has taken place during the week before and what's coming up in the approaching week, that we might be able to give our full attention to you. Father, we pray that you would help us be responsive to this challenge. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Judges chapter 12. Judges chapter 12. One of the main ideas that we continue to see in our study of the nation Israel. And remember, Israel is in many ways used as a picture of the believer's soul. So by looking at what happens to Israel in terms of their trends towards spirituality as well as their trends towards apostasy, we discover principles that illuminate what takes place in our own individual lives. And what we see coming to the forefront in the 12th chapter of Judges is what results from sin nature control in the life of Israel. The same thing happens in when the sin nature controls the life of the individual. It eventually results, even though there may be a time of a measure of happiness, a measure of stability, a measure of success. Just remember if a person defines happiness as having uh, uh, good times, having financial success, having uh, material success, lots of friends, social status, fame, that that can be achieved over a period of years, maybe even decades, where a person thinks that that brings happiness and they manage to anesthetize themselves to the spiritual realities of life because of all of the distractions from fame, from money, from success, and everything that it brings. But eventually it will collapse. And that's what we see in our lives. We see it in the life of the nation Israel, that eventually 
sin nature control is going to result in personal, cultural, national fragmentation. It always ends up in destruction. And this is something that a lot of people miss out on. So let's just quickly review what happens with the sin nature. Sin nature looks like this on the overhead. On the top and the bottom, we see the two arenas of production in the sin nature. The arena at the bottom produces personal sin, which is what we normally think of when we think of the sin nature, which is personal sin. That is our area of weakness, and we each have different areas of weakness. We are prone to different sins. Some people are prone to moral birth sins. Some people are prone to mental attitude sins. One person is prone to worry. Just give them, give them the least opportunity, and they think they're having a, an anxiety party. And they just can't wait to worry about every detail in life. Other people uh, panic. Give them a, uh, some sort of adversity, and they immediately push the panic button. Uh, there's all kinds of different sins, and every individual has different weaknesses and different strengths. The strengths are where we don't produce personal sin, where we produce good deeds, the, what we call human good, because even unbelievers can produce a measure of goodness. They can produce a measure of integrity. They can produce a measure of virtue. And there are many moral, virtuous unbelievers who have, just in terms of human good, a level of integrity that sad to say, often surpasses many Christians. But the fact is that those Christians they surpass are the Christians that are operating on the sin nature, and they just have an area of uh, weakness that trends towards licentiousness, lasciviousness, and antinomianism. That's, those are the opposite areas of production in the sin nature. And then on each side, to the left and to the right, we see the trend. We trend in different directions at different times in our lives. One trend is towards control, and that's expressed spiritually in terms of I'm bringing every area of my life under some sort of legalistic control. That appeals to certain people. They, they are attracted to asceticism. Somehow, if I can have a, a rigid spiritual discipline, such as, and, and, and we see this reflected today. Uh, I'm doing some study now, and probably as we go through our second hour study of First John, we'll get into it more. But I've watched a trend taking place in uh, Western civilization in America over the last 15 years, and I think in some ways some articles I've read recently really help to focus what's going on. But there is a shift to medieval mysticism today, and it parallels. Remember, never forget this. What happens in Christianity, the trends in Christianity always mirror the trends in the culture at large. And just as the culture at large got wrapped up in mysticism and the New Age movement and the... 1980s, the Christian church is reflecting that. It's, it's evidenced in much of the charismatic movement. It is also evidenced in a broader base movement. I know of people who have a heritage in their own personal family, their own personal background of strong conservative evangelicalism, and yet when they hit some crisis point in their life, in their 30s or 40s, they left evangelical Protestantism and went back to either Roman Catholicism or to Eastern Orthodoxy because they were attracted by the ritual and they were attracted by the mysticism. And that brought some level of meaning into their life which ultimately revealed that there was no real doctrinal understanding of spirituality to begin with. It was just a facade. But this is happening more and more. I'm seeing articles come out in, theolog in cons traditionally conservative theological journals that are going back and looking at the prayer life of the uh, medieval saints. Well, they wrap, that's wrapped up in mysticism and asceticism and going off to the monasteries and, and uh, isolation and all of these things as ways to somehow gain approbation with God. And uh, that is having a tremendous appeal today. And books are coming out. Uh, more and more books, Christian books, are being written. It's one of the positive things about living here in southeastern Connecticut is that there are very few... If any Christian bookstores, the ones that exist, have so little by way of books that we don't get influenced by a lot of the garbage that is becoming that is so popular today among so many Christians. Same thing we could say about the lack of Christian radio or television around here. It, it isolates us, which is good because the trends that are happening today are, are, are terrible. Some of you, I don't know if any of you are aware, there's a book out that... Uh, I've assigned, it's like this summer, it's fun. We have two interns. Have uh, Freddie's doing a lot of things. I'm working with him. 
uh, in advancing his understanding of doctrine and um, the ministry and doing some things with Dan as well. So I gave him an assignment to take this one book that's out. It's like the number one bestseller right now. It's a little book called The Prayer of Jabez. And I have serious questions about it as a as being doctrinally correct at all. It's produced. It's written by a guy who graduated from Dallas Seminary a few years before I did and who is the head of an internationally uh, known ministry that is quite well respected and there are many positive things that that ministry has produced over the last uh, 15 or 20 years in its existence, especially in the arena of raising the level of uh, biblical knowledge in, uh, in, in the country. And yet... Uh, this book borders dangerously on sort of a prosperity success view of prayer. And it is just, I, I just heard about it by happenstance, so to speak, within the last month or so. And then um, I'm hearing about it more and more, but people I'm talking to that are pa- other pastors that are in big cities where things of this are much, you know, they, they, they just fly through the through the uh, ranks like a, like a forest fire, and they're just facing people in their congregation are reading this and coming up with question after question after question. So I'm giving a little assignment to the two interns to write a book review and critique of this. It's a short little 60-page book, I think, or 80-page book. So we're going to see that. But that's something, that, that approach is all part of this trend towards asceticism, legalism, rationalism that is appealing to and, and has, has become very appealing to the modern 21st century evangelical Christian. We don't understand that these are trends uh, from that originate in the sin nature. The opposite trend is the trend towards licentiousness or antinomianism. That God is, the idea that God saved us by grace, we're forgiven, so it doesn't really matter what we do, let's just do, live our life the way we want to and not worry about sin because after all we're forgiven and we're going to get to heaven and, and wouldn't we rather live uh, in the slums of heaven than in a mansion on earth? So why worry about it anyway? And that is a very ir- irresponsible approach to Christianity. And these trends have, <clears throat> in more intellectual terms, they reflect a swing that takes place uh, in terms of the broad world view. I have introduced the concept of naturalism and uh, on Wednesday night in our study of Daniel and the assaults of naturalism on Christianity. And the thing is that within human viewpoint, there is always a swing from a more controlled approach to Christianity or to to life as expressed in legalism in Christianity, the idea that if I have a rigid discipline, you know, get up every morning, have my quiet time, read so many verses every morning, memorize so many verses every day, and go through this rigorous procedure that somehow that's going to automatically advance me spiritually. Not that it doesn't have spiritual value. I'm saying that just going through that kind of rigid discipline itself doesn't do it that this idea of control is expressed intellectually in the realm of rationalism, that somehow I can, that, that human viewpoint says, I can bring all the details of life together in one world view and explain everything just on the basis of human reason alone. And in that sense, I'm using rationalism not in the sense of rationalism as distinct from empiricism, but just as a broad term expressing the human viewpoint commitment to explaining life on the basis of autonomous reason divorced from the uh, influence of revelation. And the opposite of that is irrationalism. And see, because human viewpoint is always missing the critical element of truth as revealed by Scripture, that the rationalism it incorporates is always missing critical components. And it doesn't work. And it has uh, inconsistencies within it that eventually come to the forefront and blow up, and that produces irrationalism. And the point that I am making in all of this is that whenever we study anything related to people, when the sin nature is dominant, even when it's producing in the area of human good, it always produces, ultimately produces sin and it eventually will break down. No matter how good it is, no matter how rigorous it may be, no matter how much control there may be, eventually it's going to break down into chaos, whether it's intellectual chaos of irrationalism or whether it's the fragmentation of a culture and uh, disruption into civil war, or whether it's just the personal fragmentation of the soul where people end up in neurotic and psychotic because of their rebelliousness against God. Oh, we must remember is the study of any nation, of any group, whether it's a couple, 
whether it's a family, whether it's a uh, corporation, whether it's a work environment, small company, large company, whether it's a nation, any grouping, any collection of people is always a collection of sin natures. And the characteristics that dominate that collection of people are going to reflect the trends of their sin natures. We can't forget that sin not only produces evil, but it produces good. And when it operates on human good, the ultimate result is always going to be sin. It always produces sin. Human good for it may produce something valuable, some, some level of stability for a while, but eventually it's going to produce evil and it's going to produce disruption. One example of this is in the Apostle Paul's personal testimony in Romans chapter 7. And there we learn that as hard as he tried to live a moral, upright life following the principles of the Mosaic Law as interpreted by the Pharisees, the, the religious conservatives of his day, he said that ultimately he ended up doing what he did not want to do and not doing what he knew he ought to do. In other words, it ended up in personal spiritual fragmentation and it ended up in, in, in his sin. And the most extreme forms of his sin were based on his religiosity because religion is evil. Christianity is not religion, but religion is always evil. And the Apostle Paul was one of the most religious people prior to his salvation that ever existed. He was committed to the rigorous legalism of the Pharisees, and the result of that was that he was hostile to grace, hostile to Christianity, and when Christianity came along, he made it his personal task to eliminate it. And he did everything he could, and he was guilty of arresting many believers in the very early days of Christianity, in that period between Acts 2 and Acts 7, when he saved over a period of two or three years, he was going everywhere he could to root out Christians and, and to persecute them and have them thrown in prison and to have them uh, executed. And that shows us that religion is the production of human good, and ultimately it produces evil. Religion is one of the worst evils in all of history. Religion is not Christianity. Christianity is a relationship based on the grace of God and the completed work of Christ on the cross. Religion is man working, trying to gain the approval of God. Christianity is man resting on the finished work of Christ on the cross. Religion is produced by the sin nature, which always ends up, even though it's human good, it always ends up producing sin and evil. Much that is horrible in the history of mankind is done in the name of of religion. Sooner or later, you're going to run into somebody who's going to use that against you. You're a Christian, you want to witness to me. How can you believe in Christianity? Look at all the horrible things they've done. Look at the Crusades. Look at the fighting in Ireland. Look at all of the horrible things that were done during the Inquisition in the name of Christ, in the name of Christianity. And you see, there that gives us the opportunity point to point out the evils of religion and the evils of combining and merging paganism with the truth. Because whenever you merge paganism with the truth, it always destroys the truth. And that's what happened in all of those instances I've cited. What has happened is there's a facade of Christianity. There's the nomenclature of being Christian. But there, at the core of their thinking, at the core of their application, there is no biblical understanding of truth. There's no operation of truth. There's no evidence of real biblical Christianity. What happened in those instances was religion in the guise of Christianity. And what we must, what I want to emphasize is no matter how good, noble, idealistic, or beneficial the end results might be, no matter how wonderful some procedure may appear, if it flows from the sin nature and human good, it guarantees eventual failure, fragmentation, and destruction. And this is what we see written across the history of Israel during the time of the Judges. They kept rejecting the truth of, of the worship of God as revealed in the Mosaic Law and replaced it with the religions of the nations that surrounded them. See, they weren't rejecting religion. They were rejecting God. And just because you're religious, just because you're, quote, spiritual, which in modern vernacular just means you're paying more attention to your emotions, I think, uh, just because you are religious does not mean that you are interested in truth. And the more religious they became the more the nation came under divine discipline, the more they reaped the consequences of their actions, and the more they became fragmented and the nation became fragmented. What always happens under paganism, living and operating in the world system, 
is you start seeing the divine institutions attacked and they become systematically fragmented. Think about it, what we've seen so far. The fragmentation in individuals like Gideon and Jephthah. At the end of Gideon's uh, victory over the Midianites, at the, at the pinnacle of his success, when he rejects the offer of kingship, he immediately turns around and establishes an ephod as an idol and leads the people back into idolatry, showing that he's not spiritually mature, and because of sin nature control and the pagan world, uh, worldly ideas in his soul, he's fragmented. The same thing with Jephthah. He's fragmented because he has some truth, but he has a lot of paganism. There's no sense of spiritual maturity there. And at the pinnacle of his success, when he trusts God and has victory over the Ammonites, at the same time he then turns around and comes back to his home, and he has made this terrible vow because that's what he was taught. That's that, those elements of pagan truth that have come into his soul. People today are the same way. So often we find people who've grown up in churches, and yet if you sit and you really talk to them about what they believe Christianity teaches, it's a combination of truth and error because they picked up what I call cultural Christianity, a lot of mythology about what Christianity teaches or the Bible teaches, but isn't biblical. And so there, it ends up this merger of human viewpoint and divine viewpoint. Ultimately, human viewpoint is going to eat up and destroy the divine viewpoint and result in fragmentation. And that's what we saw with Jephthah last time. He makes this vow, thinking he can manipulate God to give him success. And the vow is that he will offer as a sacrifice whatever comes out of the door of his house to greet him. Now, Jews didn't keep animals in the house, so it's pretty obvious he's thinking in terms of human beings and a human sacrifice, and he got the idea of human sacrifice from the religious system of the Moabites, the Ammonites, and others who surrounded Israel. So we see personal fragmentation in the souls of Gideon and Jephthah. Also, we see fragmentation of marriage. The more pagan the nation becomes, the more marriage is fragmented. We started off with the ideal marriage of Othniel and Aksa at the beginning of Judges. And then by the time we get to Gideon, we see that Gideon is multiplying wives. He's committing polygamy so that he can demonstrate his own power and position, acting like a despotic oriental king of the time. We see prostitution. Jephthah's father, uh, Gilead, goes to a prostitute, and the result is the birth of Jephthah. We see Gideon's concubine, and the result of that is Abimelech, and the consequences of the liaisons with the concubines and the prostitutes and the, and the polygamy further uh, deteriorates the whole culture of Israel. See, the fragmentation of the third divine institution, the family. There's abuse and destruction. By the time we get to, to uh, uh, Gideon, we see the, that uh, Abimelech, his son, rejects the, his family obligation, and he uh, convinces the leaders of Shechem to give him enough money to hire killers so that they can go and assassinate his, his uh, 70 brothers. When we come to Jephthah, we see that he is more concerned with his own personal power and prestige, and he's willing to sacrifice his daughter in order to accumulate and accrue power to himself. And so he commits one of the most egregious forms of abuse and destruction by sacrificing his daughter as a burnt offering. And furthermore, we see the fragmentation of the nation, and that's what happens in Judges chapter 12. We see how the nation is divided now and fragmented, and not in a dissimilar way from the way our own nation is becoming more and more fragmented uh, over various issues. There's less and less of a... There's always been a level of division. People have different opinions. But today, as exemplified by some of the rancor and hostility generated by the election last fall, we, it just reveals the deep fissures that exist in this culture and in our country. Disagreements and divisions that can only be overcome by a return to truth. But obviously there are some people operating on truth and operating from a biblical basis and others are not. And they're getting further and further apart as we have spent all of the capital in our, the bank account of the holdover of earlier years of the impact of Christianity and positive volition. So let's look at Judges 12 and see what happens in terms of the uh, breakup of the nation into a civil war. Verse 1 begins, Then the men of Ephraim, this is after Jephthah's victory over the Ammonites, 
Then the Ephraimites come to Jephthah. And the last time we saw the Ephraimites, they were doing the same kind of thing towards Gideon. Gideon had victory over the Midianites. After the victory, the men from Ephraim came and said, Why didn't you call us to battle? Well, notice when Gideon handled that, Gideon used diplomacy. He was not as self-absorbed, apparently, as Jephthah was. We know Jephthah is a man who knows how to engage in diplomacy because he saw, we looked at his negotiations with the... Um, uh, with the Gileadite leaders earlier in chapter 11 where he got, where he negotiated with them for the authority to uh, lead the army and afterwards to be a, the head of their territory. So he knows how to negotiate. He knows how to be diplomatic. We saw his negotiations with the Ammonites. But when it comes to the Ephraimites, he becomes hardened and hostile and it hardens them in their position. In contrast, Gideon, Gideon was able to say, well... You know, your, your strength would have been better than my strength, and he appeals to their ego, and he's able to diffuse the situation. But Jephthah doesn't have that ability. Arrogance always results in fragmentation and disharmony. Men of Ephraim gathered together, crossed over towards Zaphon, crossed the Jordan, that is, came to Jephthah and said, Why did you cross over to fight against the people of Ammon and did not call us to go with you? Now, there's no indication that Jephthah ever put out a call for troops among the general population of the tribes on the other side of the Jordan. Remember, he is on the eastern side of the Jordan with the Transjordan tribes. And so the Ammonites threaten him and say, we will burn your house down on you with fire. Well, there's not much left of his house. There's an irony here. He's already sacrificed his daughters of burnt offering. And now they're threatening to burn his house down with fire, but there's nothing left. His only child is gone there is no dynasty, there is no house. Jephthah said to them, verse 2, My people and I were in a great struggle with the people of Ammon. When I called you, you did not deliver me out of their hands. See, he's going to lie. He's going to say, I called you, when in fact he did not, or at least there is no record of it. And he said, you didn't, I called you, but you did not deliver me out of, my, out of their hands. So when I saw that you would not deliver me, I took my life in my own hands and crossed over against the people of Ammon and the Lord delivered them into my hand. This is one of the few mentions of the name of the Lord. He is giving the Lord credit. Uh, I don't know if that's uh, just in the way that many people do. They just use it as lip service or whether he is uh, definitely trusting God and responding to that. He might be at this point. But he's in the midst of carnality. He's lying. He's being deceptive. And he's creating a reaction among the Ephraimites. And now he says, Why have you come up to me this day to fight against me? So he's created a hostile situation and he's reacting to their reaction. This is always the dynamics of uh, personal fights and disruptions. Verse 4, Now Jephthah gathered together all the men of Gilead and fought against Ephraim. Rather than negotiating with them, rather than defusing the situation, he just got angry with them and called his troops together and attacked them. And the men of Gilead defeated Ephraim because they said, because that is they, the Ephraimites said, you Gileadites are fugitives of Ephraim. This is a racial insult. The, Gideon, the uh, Ephraimites are basically saying, you know, you're just the scum from Ephraim. You're not really uh, as worthy as we are. We're superior to you. You Gileadites are fugitives of Ephraim among the Ephraimites and among the Manassites because their part of their tribe was on the other side of the Jordan as well. So they're just belittling the, Gideon, the Gileadites. Then in verse 5, the Gileadites seized the fords of the Jordan before the Ephraimites arrived. That is, Ephraim had crossed over from west to east and now the Gileadites send a major contingent to block the fords to cut off the retreat of the Ephraimite army. And so they seized the fords of the Jordan. And when any Ephraimite who escaped said, Let me cross over, the men of Gilead would say to him, Are you an Ephraimite? And if they said no, they denied it. Then they gave him a little test. Because the Ephraimites had a bit of a speech impediment, or it was typical standard of their, uh, their dialect, that they did not pronounce the SH sound. And they couldn't. You know, it's only in the first two or three years of life that your palate is able to... It's, it's uh, uh, malleable enough to be able to learn how to correctly pronounce certain consonants and certain diphthongs and certain combinations of letters. That's why I've noticed this when 
with the missionaries and whenever I've gone over to Russia, that there are certain ways they pronounce vowels. That it's, if you didn't grow up learning that, where your mouth could get around those sounds, then you will, after you get beyond a certain age, you'll never be able to pronounce it as a native Russian speaker pronounces it. And that's true for certain sounds in many different languages. And that's what happened here. They could not pronounce the S sound, so they gave them a test with the word shibboleth. And they would say, pronounce shibboleth. And if they said sibboleth without pronouncing the SH correctly, then they knew they were Ephraimites, and then they would kill them at the ford and execute them there. And during that time, 42,000 Ephraimites were killed. That's almost as great a slaughter as what we'll see take place with the Benjamite tribe at the end of the period of the judges. 42,000 that just about decimates the strength of Ephraim uh, at, at this particular time. But it shows the hostility, the fragmentation. This is tribe against tribe. The eastern tribes against the western tribes. The Gileadites against the Ephraimites. And so now this nation... The sons of Jacob who are called out in unity to be a testimony to God and His grace in the world and to be a a bastion of peace and stability because of the fact that they have assimilated the foreign gods and they're thinking like the world instead of as believers on the basis of doctrine. The result is division. The result is civil war. The result is one fighting against another. And then we have the concluding comments in verse 7. And Jephthah judged Israel six years. Then Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried among the cities of Gilead. Now let's go back for just a minute and think through what's been going on in the overall structure of the book of Judges. We started off saying there's a cycle, a cycle of disobedience when Israel goes after the other gods. They're enslaved to the other gods, the scripture says, and they begin to... uh, lose their freedom, their capacity for freedom, which is always based on doctrine. The issue is always doctrine and spiritual relationship with God based on the truth of His revelation. It's never the secondary causes, which would have to do with military factors, uh, industrial, technological factors, factors related to to leadership, factors related to uh, economics. It always, all of those are simple manifestations of the basic problem of spiritual rebellion. So the cycle would begin with disobedience and and God would discipline them through the invasion of a foreign nation who would oppress them for any number of years. And then the people would get tired of it and they would cry out to the Lord. They would, in the case of the uh, situation we just looked at with the Ammonites, they admitted their sin of idolatry and then God would deliver them. With the first judges, God always delivered them and you always had the sentence and God delivered them and the nation, the land was undisturbed. That's a crucial statement. The land was undisturbed because every time in the Old Testament you think of the land, it ought to take you right back to the Deuteronomic promises that God gave Moses that they would inhabit the land and that goes back to the Abrahamic covenant. God gave the land to the people and it says that God gave the land rest for 20 years or for 30 years or for 40 years and at the end of the Jephthah cycle, what do we, do, what do we not read? Even at the end of the Gideon cycle, we read that God gave the land rest for 40 years. And in the midst of that, there's the civil war and turmoil with Abimelech. But God gave the land rest. But there is no rest for the land at this particular time. It's a partial deliverance. We start to see the breakdown now. It takes years. This whole period, there's a number of chronological problems that go along with the judges. Because as we're going to see in the conclusion of the chapter, some of these judges operated at the same time as other judges. So you can't just add up all the numbers and figure out how long that period was because that doesn't work. Neither can you make it too short. It's got to be around 350 years. But it took that long to see the result of their paganism. Their commitment to human viewpoint and their rejection about God had a cumulative effect. We don't see the effect of negative volition and apostasy in our own lives maybe for 10, 15, 20, 30 years. And then suddenly everything we do starts to self-destruct. We have problems with our jobs. We uh, may become unemployed. We have problems in families. Marital breakdown. Uh, Children grow up and all of a sudden they go through periods of rebellion and we don't know what it was and perhaps it was something 
that we were failing to do in those early years. Maybe at that time we weren't committed to doctrine and weren't teaching the truth, and those kids missed out on having that foundation in the Word, and it finally bears its fruit 10, 15, 20 years later. So it's not like putting your hand on a hot stove where you have that immediate response of a negative result. It happens many years later, and it, just as it took many years to uh, develop the problem, uh, it takes many years to recover spiritually. And then they would go through that cycle again and again and again until we come to this cycle with the judges. So we've seen the judgeship of Othniel, Ahud, Deborah, and Gideon. At the end of each, God gave the land rest. But now we come to the last two. Jephthah dealing with the Ammonites and their pressure from the east and Samson dealing with the Philistines in the south. And when the book concludes, They're still under the oppression of the Philistines. There is no deliverance under Samson. In fact, Samson dies as a prisoner of the Philistines. There is no deliverance yet. And so the book of Judges overall is an extremely pessimistic book. That's why it must always be taught, and we'll go from Judges into Ruth when we finish, in conjunction with Ruth and ultimately in conjunction with 1 Samuel, because in 1 Samuel we see the deliverer come on the scene. At the same time that these events are going on with Jephthah and Samson, we have to understand that God is in the process of providing the deliverance. And that emphasizes the grace of God in this this whole procedure. That even though Israel is turning its back on God, God does not turn His back on Israel. God God continues to be faithful. Now, on the overhead, we have the uh, bar chart of uh, of the time frame in which all these people live. Jephthah's dates are roughly 1150 B.C. to 1100 B.C. About the time that Jephthah reaches adulthood, Samson is born. Those are the events of chapter 13. So chapter 13, 1, doesn't come on the heels of chapter 12. Sometime, probably before Judges 11 or during the period of Judges 10, are when the events in chapter 13 begin. Samson's born. And his dates are roughly 1123 to 1084 B.C. And about the time Samson is still a young boy, eight or nine years of age, Samuel is going to be born. But that's not covered in the book of the Judges. Samuel, though, is the last judge. He's also the first prophet. He's the transition from the period of the Judges to the period of the Kings because he will be the first to anoint, legitimately anoint a king over Israel in the person of Saul. So Samuel, therefore, is the picture of the deliverer. And in some sense, he is the foreshadow of John the Baptist because he will anoint the king. And the anointing is a picture of the coming one, the Messiah. And the conclusion of Samuel, you start with at the beginning of 1 Samuel and the nation is at the bottom. The nation is fragmented. The nation is is in this condition we find it in, in in this latter part of Judges 11, 12, 13, 14. And God in His grace provides Samuel. And at the beginning of Samuel, the the nation is spiritually barren. It is is, uh, divided. It's in civil war. But at the end of 2 Samuel, remember when it was written, it was one book. It was only divided because they couldn't get it all in one scroll. At the end of Samuel... The nation is under the Davidic kingship. God has promised a greater son to David in the Messiah. The Davidic kingdom is a picture of the eventual messianic kingdom. And what we see is a picture of the grace of God, the deliverance for the spiritually bankrupt nation at the beginning of that period, in the middle of the judges. The solution is grace. And the solution is going to be the divine deliverance. And it's a picture of the gospel, the divine deliverance under the Davidic Messiah. Because at the end of second, at the beginning of Samuel, they're at their worst, most fragmented part in their history, and at the end of Samuel, they have the expansion of the Davidic kingdom and the great glories that came with that. So those are the major figures that are that are on the scene during this time. Starting in 1124, you have two oppressions begin: one from the east and one from the west. The Ammonite oppression is basically put down. By 1106, we don't hear anything more about the Ammonites for some time. The Philistine oppression continues. Samuel, uh, Samson is ineffective, and it's not until the Battle of Mizpah 
in 1084 B.C. that uh, under Saul that the Philistines are eventually defeated and Israel begins to push back the Philistine encroachments. Now, let's have a few points in terms of conclusion and summary, some observations about what we learned from Jephthah. First of all, Jephthah began with many strikes against him. Jephthah began from a human perspective with many uh, problems, many, many flaws. He was the bastard son of a prostitute. He had no position in society. He was rejected by his family. In fact, when he reached adulthood, they kicked him out and they wanted him as far away from them as possible. So he fled from them and he took up a lifestyle in the wilderness where he associated with outlaws and the dregs and rejects of society and operated outside of the law. As far as the Jews were concerned, on the other side of the Jordan, he was a Gileadite. You know, you're from the wrong side of the Jordan. It's like being from the wrong side of the tracks. So, in terms of human status, he has none. Human viewpoint, none of the things people look to, but yet God used him. So, there's the picture of grace. God is going to use him. The Holy Spirit's going to come upon him. And that emphasizes, once again, the grace of God. Yet, this is not a man that is... Uh, fully devoted to God or understands Scripture. Those are the positive things about Jephthah. He trusts God in the midst of the battle to, do, to give him victory. But it's so caught up with all of his failures that eventually his arrogance brings self-destruction and proves his own undoing. He held to a mixed form of religion, some truth, but a lot of error that he uh, incorporated from the paganism around him. The result that he is that he destroys everything he set out to gain. When you operate on human viewpoint, when you do not sell yourself completely to the Word of God and to doctrine as your priority, eventually your arrogance will catch up with you and destroy you. Jephthah is a picture of the theme of the book, that everyone did what was right in his own eyes. He's a manipulator trying to manipulate God with with the seriousness of his vow. He's willing to sacrifice anything for his own ambition, for his own power, for his own prestige, his own career. He illustrates that self-absorption and arrogance are the core of pagan thought and ultimately result in our own destruction. Though there is room in paganism for altruism, for good deeds, for charity, ultimately it is human good and it will produce sin and evil and lead to tragedy. One writer, one commentator on Judges writes, This arrogant man proves himself the consummate manipulator who opportunistically seizes power over his tribesmen, bargains with God, victimizes his daughter, and brutalizes fellow Israelites. Paganism always results in the brutal, brutalization of mankind. It's ultimately pictured in Daniel, we're going to see when we get to Daniel chapter 5 and 7, the kingdoms of man are pictured as God sees them as beasts. And man in his arrogance becomes brutal and bestial. Jephthah is the son of a prostitute and embodies all that is wrong in spiritually unfaithful Israel. For Israel, man does not exist to serve God, but God exists to serve man. Sacrifice for Jephthah is not an expression of sacrifice and devotion to God, but is a means to manipulate God. And the result is failure on his part, the loss of everything he hoped to gain. And once again, it symbolizes how barren the nation has become spiritually. Furthermore, when we look at the Ephraimite uh, civil war, it portrays one problem with arrogant self-absorption. And that is that people become hypersensitive. When you are focused on yourself, then all of a sudden you, you, you become very sensitive to anything, whether it's a real or perceived slight or insult. And the reaction is that you then seek to build yourself up and to promote yourself and defend yourself. So one problem with self-absorption is hypersensitivity, and we see that everywhere we turn today. Hardly a day goes by that you can't read a news story about some individual, some group, 
suing or bringing a charge against some, some employer, some company, the government, because they have slighted them in some way. They have used some term that they viewed as insulting and pejorative. In fact, recently I was told that a very old, distinguished, famous restaurant in Houston, where I used to enjoy eating, called the Confederate House, has closed its doors finally due to the incessant pressure from the sensitive crowd that doesn't like any reference to the Confederacy or to the South. So they have been forced, because of their name, to close their door. This is a restaurant that's been there for 70 or 80 years and one of the finest restaurants in the city of Houston. And that's just arrogant hypersensitivity and people who can't understand uh, things that have gone on in the past, mistakes that have been made by previous generations and can't step over that and get past it are people who are doomed to failure. They are doomed to failure because they have no capacity for understanding history. And if you do not understand your past, you cannot understand your future. Uh, last year, we had a friend of mine was up visiting Gene Brown. And Gene had just been to China. In a conversation with a Chinese gentleman one day about uh, foreign policy and China's relationship to the U.S. And he asked the man, he says, well, do you fear the U.S.? So why should we fear the U.S.? The U.S. is only concerned about the present. The U people in the U.S. have no comprehension of their own history. And a people who do not have a past do not have a future. And this is the same thing that we see, in a sense, illustrated with Jephthah. Jephthah is a man without a father. He's the son of a woman who sold her body and a man who assumed no responsibility for his own sexual conduct. Because Jephthah had no father, no family, no inheritance, he had no past. He had no history. Because he had no past, he eventually has no future. He sacrifices his future on an altar as a burnt offering. And that is why understanding history is crucial if you're a believer. Now, some people think history is boring. I can't understand that. I've always thought history was fascinating. But history is the outworking of the plan of God in terms of human dynamics. History is one of the most important things uh, we can understand. That's why Satan always assaults history. Because once history is viewed as just the opinions of different people and that it can be manipulated in any form, way or shape, which it can by, by some, then, then people reject history as being irrelevant to them. And once people reject history, then they lose any orientation to, to values. They don't understand historical trends. And they become, begin to uh, obsess simply on the present. All of this is evidenced in the episode with Jephthah. And finally, in his extremes and abuse, he demonstrates the problem with non-biblical patriarchal authority. I want to emphasize this point. What happens with the feminist crowd today, when they come and look at Jephthah, and they look at the period of the judges, is they say, oh, this demonstrates the problem with patriarchy. No, it doesn't demonstrate the problem with patriarchy. Patriarchy is the position that the man is the head of the home, the man is the head of the state. The man is the head of the church. A pastor is to be a man, a male, not a woman. The Bible does not ever authorize women to be pastors or to teach or have authority over men. That is a patriarchal system. But it's a patriarchal system based on the truth, based on the concept of love. The, Jesus summarized the law as love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. When that energizes the biblical concept of patriarchy, it is a vastly different system than when you have the pagan version of patriarchy. And the version, pagan version of patriarchy is as much a failure as any version of matriarchy because any and all versions of matriarchy are false. And they always end up in failure. No society in the history of man that is based on matriarchy has ever been successful or has ever produced anything of significance or value. What we see in Judges is what happens when you take authority and divorce it from the absolute authority of God. The result is always going to be tyranny and tyranny in every frame, uh, in every dimension of life. What happens with Jephthah's male power becomes exercised for his own personal ends. He exploits everyone, male and female, just, in the, just to further his own agenda. And that always happens when people are divorced from God and divorced from grace and divorced from humility is that they're out to further their own ends. And in a patriarchal system, that is going to be destructive. But it is not biblical patriarchy here. 
This is pagan patriarchy. That is, And the writer of Judges is pointing out pagan patriarchy doesn't work. It's only under the biblical, uh, only when the biblical principles of doctrine are applied that it works. And that's the only system that should work. So in conclusion, we see that God is in the background of this. He's not mentioned, but He is the one who delivers them. We see His grace working despite Israel's apostasy and their carnality. And the point we learn from that is that we are still alive. God still has a plan for your life. It doesn't matter how much we fail. It doesn't matter how heinous our crimes are, how horrible our sins are, how many people we've offended, stepped on, destroyed in the process. If we're still alive, God still has a plan for our life. No matter how badly we self-destruct in life, there is a way to recovery. And that way to recovery starts with confession of sin, and it has to be done over, at that stage over and over again. You may spend hours simply confessing your sins to get back in fellowship. But it's a starting point is on grace, and it's built on grace and learning and applying doctrine. That concludes the episode of Jephthah. Then we have three judges mentioned, Ibsen, Ellen, and Abdon. And little is said about them, and there is just a hint of what they illustrate. In verse 8 we read, after him, that's after Jephthah. Ibsen of Bethlehem, this would be the Bethlehem in Judah, Bethlehem judged Israel. He had 30 sons, and he gave away 30 daughters in marriage. Now, once again, to have 60 children implies that he had more than one wife. So you have to read into the text. You have to, to say, oh, he's got 60 children. He's amassing power. It reminds us of Gideon's 70 sons. So he's, he's um, accumulating personal power. It's a picture of his own personal success and power and creating his own dynasty. Gave 30 daughters away in marriage. This indicates that, that he's using those marriages as a way to cement alliances with other families and other clans. He brought in 30 daughters from elsewhere for his son. So he's using all of these marriages in order to establish his own position. He judged Israel seven years. Then Ibsen died and was buried at Bethlehem. Notice, no indication of deliverance, no indication of peace in the land. Verse 11, after him, Elon. So these, the after him indicates they're successive. After him, Elon, the Zebulonite, he's up in the northwest, judged Israel for ten years. And Elon, the Zebulonite, died and was buried at Aijalon in the country of Zebulon. And that's all we know of him. After him, Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Parathenite, Pirathonite judged Israel. He had 40 sons and 30 grandsons. Once again, the expansion and enlargement of the family indicates that he is building his own uh, empire. 40 sons, 30 grandsons who rode on 70 young donkeys. This is not the donkey that's used as a pack animal, but the donkey that one rides on. That was rare in those days. Uh, nobody uh, or very few people had donkeys upon which they could ride, but those who did were wealthy. So it indicates his own personal wealth and power, and it also hints at the fact that he is using this uh, over the Israelites. Once again, they're doing what's right in their own eyes, and instead of uh, being spiritually oriented, they're oriented to their own personal power and prestige. And then in verse 15, Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Parathenite, died and was buried in Pirathon in the land of Ephraim in the mountains of the Amalekites. And there the suggestion is, with the last word being Amalekites, it reminds us of the presence of the Canaanites and human viewpoint in the land. Then we come to the beginning of the birth of Samson. The birth of Samson. Verse 1 of chapter 13. Again, the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord delivered them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. Now, if we track that out, we know that for 40 years that did not end with the death of Samson. It continues. Then we read in verse 2, Now there was a certain man from Zorah, of the family of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren, and had no children. Now why does he make a point of the barrenness of this woman? And that leads us to the doctrine of the barren woman. I bet you've never heard this before. The doctrine of the barren woman. First time I got clued into this was dealing with uh, ladies in the church who were having trouble because in, in getting pregnant and a couple of miscarriages. And about that time, I was studying in Samuel with, with Hannah. 
And there, there is a doctrine of the barren woman, and the Bible talks about women as being barren as having spiritual significance. But we need to pay attention to it because it opens up what's happening in this book. First point. The significance of barrenness is not some sin on the part of this woman. It's not because they're personally sinful or carnal or going through divine discipline. There's a broader picture. There were certainly many other barren women in the Scripture that are not mentioned than the six that are mentioned. Only six are mentioned in Scripture. Why these six? What is the point of emphasizing the barren woman? Point number two. The six are Sarah, mentioned in Genesis 11.30, Rebecca in Genesis 25.21, and then Rachel in 29.31. Now, what's significant about them? They are the wives of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They are all barren. That is, their womb is dead, yet into their dead womb, God is going to bring life. The birth of Israel is a miracle where God brings life where there is death. Then we have the mother of Samson, who is nameless in Judges 13 and Hannah in 1 Samuel 1. Then we have Elizabeth, no more mentioned in the Old Testament. Then we have Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, in Luke 1. Those are the six barren women in Scripture. Third point, the absence of barren women uh, indicates Israel, Israel's spirituality. The a- that's a misprint there. The absence of barren women indicated indicates Israel's spirituality. According to the Mosaic Law in Exodus 23:26, if there were no barren women, then that was because God was blessing them. The presence of barren women indicated Israel's carnality and divine judgment. Exodus 23:26 reads, There shall be no one miscarrying or barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. That was God's promise if they obeyed the law. So barrenness was a sign of God's discipline on the nation because the nation was in apostasy, carnality, and it represented their spiritual deadness, a lack of spiritual life in the land. Thus, point four, the barren womb in these women, another typo, I did this quickly this morning, thus the barren womb in these women pictures the emptiness and lifelessness of mankind. It is an illustration of man's spiritual death and that man is unable to bring life where there is death. Yet, point five, in each case, God miraculously brings forth life where there is death. It's a picture of regeneration. And in each case, it's a picture that only God can solve the problem of spiritual birth. And that is the situation with each of these women, with Sarah... Rebecca, Rachel, with the birth of the nation Israel. And then you have two more, and incidentally, they happen at almost the same time. You have Hannah and the mother of Samson. It's the same period of time in history when the nation is spiritually bankrupt. They're spiritually barren. And yet God is going to bring forth life in their dead dead womb because He is going to restore life to Israel, that He is the one and He is the only one who can solve the problem. And then with, with Elizabeth, It's another time of spiritual barrenness in Israel and God is going to use that birth to bring forth John the Baptist who is the forerunner and the one who announces the coming of the Messiah. So barrenness is used to illustrate spiritual principles in Israel. Ultimately, point six, the barren womb is a type of the virgin womb of Mary. There, the solution to the barren womb is the new life in the incarnation of the God-man, Jesus Christ. God is going to bring forth life in an unopened womb, in a virgin womb. And that life is going to be the light of man. And that life is going to be the unique person of all history and of the whole universe. The man who is fully undiminished deity and true humanity united in one person who will go to the cross and pay for the sins of the world so that barrenness and death is no longer a problem. He is the one who will pay the sin penalty of spiritual death, and he is the one who will conquer physical death in the resurrection. So when we read in Judges 13.2 that Manoah's wife was barren, that carries some spiritual significance with it, that God is going to use her 
as a way of bringing grace to the nation. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we thank You for the principles that we see here, that it is only through Your grace that life is brought where there is death, that ultimately this is exemplified in the virgin conception and birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that is unsure of their salvation and uncertain of their spiritual destiny, that they would realize, as the Apostle Paul said in Ephesians 2, 1, that we are born dead in our trespasses and sins. We are born spiritually dead because of the sin problem, because we have had the sin of Adam, Adam's original sin imputed to our sin nature, and so we are born under condemnation. And until Christ came, that sin penalty was not paid for, but He paid the penalty. And now the issue is not our sin, the issue is Jesus Christ. The issue is faith alone in Christ alone. He paid the penalty for us, so the issue now is whether or not we accept it or reject it. Right where you sit right now, you can make that eternal salvation your own eternal possession by simply putting your faith in Jesus Christ, believing that He died for your sins, was buried, and rose again on the third day. Father, we pray for the rest of us that we would take the things that we have learned, be reminded of your uh, unfathomable grace and how you always provide the solution for us and that you are indeed the only solution and that we might not take our spiritual life and doctrine granted, but that we might realize that it is the most important thing that we ever do, and that we might make it the heartbeat of our life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.